0: Uh, turning within your bulletin, let us uh, confess together from the Heidelberg Catechism, and we are continuing uh, through the Catechism, and we arrive now at Lord's Day 24. And so, beginning in question 62, uh, Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, why can't our good works be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of our righteousness, because the righteousness which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect and must in every measure up to the divine law. But even our best works in this life are all imperfect and stained with sin. How can our good works be said to merit nothing when God promises to reward them in this life and the next? This reward is not merited. It is a gift of grace. But doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? No. It is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. And now, please, with me, uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We will read the first 10 verses. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Last words. The phrase might call to your mind perhaps your favorite action movie. Uh, The villain, he has the good guy cornered, and just before he's about to deliver the final and decisive blow, he strangely pauses and he says, any last words? And somehow the good guy finds a way to get out of this situation. He overcomes and saves the day last words it might remind you of something maybe your friend said to you at a meal when after having just too much food you still turn to your friend and you say you know i think i can just fit one more bite in and your friend says famous last words last words in all seriousness i think it's worth considering them they are those final words and thoughts that come to a person's mind and they utter just before their life ends Nothing quite reveals a person's character, their longings and hopes, their fears and their regrets quite like those last words. It's those words that reflect who that person is and what their priorities really are. We could think, for example, the last words of Fred Rogers, whom you may know as Mr. Rogers. At the end of his life, a life that, according to all kinds of worldly standards was as good and as kind as loving uh, as they come well at the end of his life he turned to his wife and he asked her do you think i'm a sheep he wasn't asking if she thought he was one of those who are easily manipulated like somebody who just goes along with the crowd like one of the sheeple he was referring to Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats. Upon his return, Jesus will judge all people and will determine who his sheep are and who are the goats. To the sheep, Christ will say, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But to the goats, he will say, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Mr. Rogers, kind, compassionate, patient, and gentle. At the end of his life, he worried that he might not be a sheep. And we might be inclined here to say that Mr. Rogers, he probably lacked assurance because he didn't believe in justification by faith alone. But it actually does not infrequently happen that a minister... A minister who, after a long and faithful ministry of proclaiming the gospel of a full and free salvation for those who are in Christ Jesus through faith alone. For a minister, when he's at the bedside of a dying Christian, one of his faithful church members, in fact, that the Christian turns to him and he says, Well, I hope that I did enough. I hope I did enough. This man, he doesn't mean, I hope that there is nothing I've left undone. I hope my affairs are all in order. He's saying that I hope that I've done enough to be accepted by God. I hope I've done enough to be able to get into heaven. Well, what will you say? What will you say when you close your eyes for the last time and you stand before those proverbial pearly gates before Peter and he says to you, well, why should I let you in this celestial city? What will your answer be? Will it be because I hope I've done enough? Well, have you done enough? What hope do you really have of entering that promised land? Well, our text, it tells us that in our own strength, we have not, nor will we ever do enough. You will never measure up. And yet our text also shows us that Christ has done enough. And it's in Christ alone, through faith alone, and by grace alone, that any of us have any hope of being reconciled to our holy God and of entering into his eternal Sabbath rest. And we will see this in three points. First, we are not saved by good works. Second, we are saved by Christ's good works. And thirdly, we are saved for good works. Or, if you wish, we can say the three points are guilt, grace, and gratitude. First, we are not saved by good works. Ephesians 2 1 through 3 makes this abundantly clear. In verse 1, it says that apart from Christ, we are dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Walking, it's a common metaphor to describe a person's lifestyle. It describes the thoughts, the words and deeds, the beliefs and desires, indeed the entire disposition that characterizes that person. So our whole lives, they were in rebellion against God, enslaved to our trespasses and sins. Paul goes on in verses 2 and 3 to say precisely how we were enslaved to that sinful lifestyle. It was by following the ways of this present evil age. We were participants of the current world order that is hostile to the holy law of God, hostile to his redemptive works, and hostile to the people of God. We were also in bondage to our trespasses and sins by following the works of Satan. Before the great and marvelous adoption that we have in Christ, whereby we can call God our father, our father was the devil, We lived according to his whims, giving our ear and our hearts to his temptations. We had no hope of reconciliation with God because as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Instead, we lived in rebellion following that arch rebel. And we were enslaved to our trespasses and sins by living according to the passions of the flesh. Our very nature was fallen. It was inclined toward all evil. And as Jesus has said, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Our corrupt and sinful nature then, it drew us toward all kinds of aversions. We were living for our own pleasures, like those Epicureans, living for our own lusts. In other words, we were of the world, the flesh and the devil and for this reason we were by nature paul says children of wrath inherently doomed to condemnation and that is why paul describes us as being dead we were dead because of our sin therefore what kind of works could we have produced if not dead works i mean it certainly is not the case that we could ever have produced good works and this is what the Heidelberg question 62 says, that the good we do cannot make us right with God. It goes on and asks if our good works could at least help make us right with God. Sure, in our own strength, we cannot measure up to God's holy and perfect standard, but perhaps we can at least contribute to the righteousness which God requires. But John says in 1 John 1, 1.8, this is what we heard earlier. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And James, in conjunction with this, he says that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has, been, has become guilty of all of it. Therefore, any work that we do, it falls short of God's law. Any good that we do is discredited by the very fact that we also sin. Even if we should try to think about this in like economic terms, like paying off a debt through installments, we still could not earn our salvation because God is inherently holy and just. Therefore, our works must of themselves be holy and just in order to be acceptable. But even our best works are marred and polluted According to Isaiah 64, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. No creditor would accept dirty, filthy, torn rags in the place of gold. Neither will God accept our good works when they are so polluted and filthy. God doesn't look at our good works and say, you know, you've tried your best. You know, this is good enough for me. And at least you had good intentions. No, God is perfectly just. He requires works then that are perfectly just. We come to him bringing our best works, thinking we have achieved something, but he is actually just disgusted with them. Let's think about it. What quality of water would you be drinking if the source of that water were used as a toilet? Would you drink that water? So, what kind of works are produced by a dead and decaying heart? Would God accept those works? And so then does the Heidelberg say, again in 62, that even our best works are imperfect and stained with sin. If you think that maybe at least we're enabled by grace to keep God's law, well, Paul's rebuttal is decisive. According to Romans 7, the corruption of sin still clings to us. He says, nothing good dwells in me. And he's saying this even as a Christian. For I desire to do what is right, but not the ability to to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And so he concludes, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So again, at the end of your life, can you have any confidence that you have done enough? Things are hopeless, aren't they? And yet, just after Paul seems to have given in to sin-driven despair, he suddenly proclaims, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No condemnation when you have your doubts. No condemnation when you fail against sin. No condemnation when you fall back into that addiction. No more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because we are saved by Christ's good works. And that is our second point. We are not saved by our good works, but we are saved by Christ's good works. Now, this is what we considered last week in Lord's Day 23. Uh, I recommend going back and listening to what Pastor Danny said there. But recall that last week we considered question 60. And as Pastor Danny pointed out, this is one of those great questions of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's one of those questions we should memorize in asking how we are right with God, how we are justified before this holy God, it says, and listen closely to this, only by true faith in Jesus Christ, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless... Without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if I had never sinned, nor had been a sinner, and as if I had been perfectly obedient, as Christ was obedient for me, if I only accept this gift with a believing heart so we move on from this clear and robust definition of justification to Lord's Day 24. And we move on to Lord's Day 24 because justification by faith alone is actually really hard to accept. As sweet and as good as that doctrine is, it goes against our natural disposition. We know by our nature that God requires our good works. We know by nature that heaven must be earned. And that's why we try to contribute to our salvation by our own good works. And we even fall short in sin. We still try to atone for ourselves, trying to make up for what we lack, because we know by nature that God requires perfection. This is something that a uh, pastor was hinting at just in the last service when he read from Romans 1. God, his righteousness has been revealed from, uh, from heaven He requires righteousness and we know in our hearts, we know because we're made in the image of God after his likeness that that is what he requires of us. And so we try to 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 deliver, we try to provide those good works. And yet we know just by looking at that first point we considered that we fail. But the gospel, it is surprising, it's even unnatural. It catches us off guard. While we know that heaven must be earned, we come to find out that heaven has actually already been earned for us. Christ, the last Adam, as our federal head, he has secured our salvation. He has secured our salvation first by his passive obedience, by which he suffered the humiliation of a mortal life and death on a cross. And thereby he atoned for our sins so our sins, they have been separated as far as the east is from the west, which we read earlier. And he has earned heaven by his active obedience, by which he has perfectly kept the requirements of God's law. Earning a positive righteousness, apart from which no one can see God. God requires perfect righteousness. And yet that righteousness, which is Christ's, becomes ours. As Ephesians 2.8 makes clear, it is by grace alone and through faith alone. And the next verse in chapter two, verse nine, it makes this even clearer, supporting 62, Heidelberg 62, "Our salvation is not the result of our good works. Whether, before we had faith or when we have faith, there is no point in our life in which our good works contribute to our salvation." And yet, that doesn't mean that our salvation does not entail good works. We are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. In fact, we are saved just so that we can produce good works. And this is our last point. We are saved for good works. Now, notice how the Catechism frames this issue for us in question 64. Since our salvation is completely free, it asks... Doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? Well, this should sound familiar to us. This is just the kind of objection that Paul anticipated in Romans 6.1. Just after explaining the free and fullness of God's grace and the nature of our salvation in Jesus Christ, the objection is, okay, Paul, if this grace is so full and so free, why shouldn't I sin so that grace may abound? And expounding upon this passage... The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, If your preaching of the gospel of God's free grace in Jesus Christ does not provoke the charge from some of antinomianism, of lawlessness, you are not preaching the gospel of the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. Heidelberg 64 responds by saying, It is impossible by those, for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. And this is in accord with Ephesians 2.10. For we were, as it says, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Notice that we are in Christ Jesus. According to John 15.5, we bear fruit through our union with Christ. It is a natural consequence of our being united to Christ that we would produce good works. Paul also says that we are created in Christ Jesus. In Christ, says Paul, uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, for example, we are a new creation. As a new creation, we have a new nature. Altogether different from that old nature which we read about in Ephesians 2, 1-3. Uh, While there in Ephesians 2, 1, we walked in trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2, 10, we walk in the good works because we are made partakers of the new creation. Because of our new nature, we cannot help but do good works. A healthy tree bears healthy fruit, does it not? It's just what we are. In fact, one of the purposes for which we have been saved apart from works, as Paul says in, it says in 2.9, is so that we may do those same good works, as he says in 2.10. Therefore, you who feel weak and like your works are worthless, especially in view of your great sins, Jesus has made you a new creation. In Christ, your works are for the very first time acceptable to God. Not as the grounds of your salvation, but as the result of your salvation. It's precisely when we give up on trying to achieve salvation by our own strength, when we stop working and simply believe and receive Christ. It is then that the way of salvation is open to us and it is then that our good works are finally acceptable to God because they are done in Christ Jesus. While apart from faith, all of our good works could only contribute to our guilt and condemnation, through faith in Christ, our works are now pleasing to God. Before faith, the law was this heavy chain and burden that through sin bound us like prisoners but now through faith and in christ that same chain is now something we put around our necks and with which we adorn ourselves because the law is good and the law is beautiful the law through my sin could only condemn me but now it is something that we could do freely out of gratitude christ died not only to remove our guilt but he died also for our good works not only are we justified in Christ, but our good works too are made righteous in Christ. Even though our works in and of themselves are polluted in Christ, they are now pleasing to God. And therefore, beloved, in conclusion, we, why do we say that we are saved in Christ alone, by grace alone and through faith alone? That great reformation saying of the five solas. How do we say that? Because when we try to add to our justification through our good works, we are functionally saying that Christ's work is insufficient. His work is lacking. We are saying that Jesus is not enough. And when we rely on ourselves, if we rely on ourselves at any point in our salvation, we are functionally rejecting Jesus. For as Paul says in Galatians, if righteousness were through the law, Christ died for no reason. By saying that there has to be something you do for your salvation, you are ultimately relying upon yourself and your own impotent works and rejecting that full and free gospel forgiveness that is in Christ alone, through faith alone, and by grace alone. Therefore, beloved, recognize and believe God's word for you today. This word from Ephesians, and, and, and consider how Lord's Day 24 summarizes that word. First of all, without faith, your works only condemn you. But through faith, not only are we, but so also are our works pleasing to God. True faith is productive of good works because it joins us to Christ in whom we are made new creations. And so at the end of your days, where will you place your confidence and hope? What will your last words be? Will they be, I hope I did enough. Will you weather, worry whether you are a sheep? I mean, if Mr. Rogers, of all people, had reason to doubt whether he was a sheep, I mean, what hope did any of us really have? Consider these last words from J. Gresham Machen. When dying of pneumonia, he said, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Put all of your confidence in Christ, who is your righteousness through faith alone, so that your last words may be just like that. So thankful for the justification I have in Christ. No hope without it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are hopeless without you, and yet you set your love so amazingly upon us, giving us new life in Christ. Seeing that our works are worthless, you nevertheless make them pleasing in Christ and by your Holy Spirit. Pray, Lord, that those good works that we are made for, that we would pursue those good works today and throughout the rest of this week as we look to Christ, who is the finisher and perfecter of our faith. And we also pray, Lord, that he would come quickly and make our faith into sight. We praise you and we love you. we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.